afternoon on a Monday and that means time for Rational Radio. Today we have got uh, our very first um, guest from the Kruger Park, Koki Koiman. Uh, David, I, I think that we should penalize him in some way. I don't know how one does that, that he could be in such a, a wonderful location uh, where unfortunately he can't use a camera. But it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll hear him well enough. Koki, let's just make sure we can hear you clearly. Yeah, no, uh, you'll just have to excuse me every time Every time when there's an elephant that comes into view, I might have to switch off. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> we, we feel privileged that you've actually given up your hour to join us today. But it is a big day. Uh, the first round results, which we'll be talking about in just a moment. David, from your side, though, before we go into the first round results, this story over the weekend with mm. first round, um, with Naspers, uh, mm. it's, affiliate Tencent mm. being banned in the United States, uh, the, its its flagship, WeChat. And then, then a judge overruled it uh, mm. late last night, I think it must have been, because it only came through early this morning. Mm. I'm getting nervous about Naspers with, with all of this happening, given that it's it's so exposed to Tencent and it, it seems like Donald Trump <laughs> is desperately wanting to somehow eject them from the country. I wouldn't worry about it because WeChat doesn't have many followers in the uh, United States. And I think there's a bit of a backlash from other countries uh, with, the, you know, with WeChat. So I, they, they might have a, a couple of, what, 100 million or not even. I don't even think it's that much. In fact, I think it's considerably less than that. It's mainly expats who talk to their um, parents and uh, relatives in China. But it's a very powerful app. So I'm, you know, it doesn't bother me with uh, WeChat, but it is a, it, it's a um, slap against uh, President Trump. The the magistrate ruled that, uh, you know, that there's not sufficient evidence by the government uh, in terms of um, what's it, uh, security or threatening security to have banned it, and therefore they need to provide further evidence. But this is the U.S. government, and this is President Trump. You know, and he's got a lot more powerful arsenal than a few people who are bringing some kind of claims against uh, the U.S. government. So we'll see where it goes. But for the meantime, there is an interdict to stop them uh, banning WeChat. But but Alec, it's it's such a small part of uh, of you know of Tencent. So I, but, I think but wait, more David. Would, hmm? wait a minute. There are two other things: is Tencent Music. And Tencent, one-third of their income comes from gaming, and they've invested $20 billion into U.S. gaming companies. And what happens if that gets sterilized? That's another it's, point. It's kind of a knock-on effect that's mm. a constant, not, not WeChat that's itself. But I think you're going to have a revolution if uh, they stop the gaming side. You know, we've seen what's <laughs> happened with can, – can you imagine people – you know, can you imagine the – the implications of trying to unwind something like that. You know, it's like unwinding a fruit salad or, uh, mm. or or a salad. It's very, very difficult. The links are so entrenched and the technology is so entrenched that I think somewhere along the line there will be some kind of uh, uh, protest. And we see it with TikTok. Look at the TikTok deal. TikTok will still, ByteDance will still be in charge, according to the deal that's being done now. They'll still be in charge of 80% of the company. 20% will be given 
to uh, Oracle and to to Walmart. You know, twelve and a half percent to Oracle, seven and a half percent to to Walmart. Uh, and and all they're going to do is to um, you know is to house the data. So uh, mm. it's not going to be any different. Where's Trump and demanding big payments for the sale and demanding big taxes? Suddenly he's gone very quiet on that. And I think the same kind of thing will, I think all of this will fizzle out once the election's over. Please God, you know, we're not, you know, who knows what the outcome is going to be. But I think a lot of this is also political posturing ahead of, uh, ahead of the election. And I think, thank goodness we've only got about, what's it, 40 days or you know, 50 days, <laughs> not that long to go. No, the other the other side of the coin says mm. that uh, the data, first of all, that Tencent is very close to the Chinese Communist Party, uh, that the Chinese have been shown to use data from other parts of the world, and they 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 clearly do uh, pull this in. You've seen what happens in Hong Kong and the way that uh, they have been applying their might there, mm. uh, anti-democracy. This. Yeah. This is, this, there's a lot more to this. Uh, mm. It's very, it's very easy to say Donald Trump, and uh, you know he is an erratic <clears throat> character, but there's quite a lot more behind the scenes. And to me, I am getting nervous. I'm getting nervous because now this is what 25% of South Africa's stock market, mm. and mm. you have uh, its biggest mm. investment uh, mm. in the United States is now starting to. Uh, I- Starting, starting to get the, uh, it's in the, it's in the crosshairs of the U.S. Mm. government. Anyway, it's, it's yeah. one of those things. You're not worried. I'm a little nervous. No. <laughs> I'm not worried. Let's ask Cookie. Cookie, are you worried about this? Uh, what's going on with with nuts? Well, with remember, 25% of South African stock market is caught up in all of this nonsense. Are you worried, Cookie? Well, you know, David is right in that the the U.S. part of total 10 cents is relatively small, but uh, the valuation obviously does need growth. And, um, you know, and, and Trump is obviously trying his best to gain votes. But I think where David is right is he will push the anti-China rhetoric because he thinks, you know, that will gain him a lot of votes. But to go and go against the gamers, <laughs> it's going to cost you a lot of votes. So, you know, uh, it's, it's unfortunately all about the presidential election. And so until, you know, uh, early November, we're going to have this uncertainty, this swings, swinging around. Cookie, we are going to talk a little later, and that's the reason for you being our uh, guest uh, star asset manager today, about the first round results. We will be talking with Alan Pullinger. Just to put it into perspective, and I, I pulled out a couple of, Graphs. There's the first mm-hmm. one. Um, you can't see it on your screen, Corky, obviously, but uh, David and I are looking at it now. This shows a 10-year first-round share price movement from the time that, uh, if you go back to 2012, was the last time that it was trading around these levels, and it's come down very significantly uh, since the the COVID pandemic hit. From I suppose you could say between 2016 and 2020, somewhere between 60 rand and 70 rand a share generally. And now it looks like it's it's going to be around the 40 or between the 30 and the 40 rand a share level. I guess there are people who believe that there's a very good reason for this. But are has the market overreacted on this? 
I, I think it has, and certainly history shows that it has. Uh, and if you just think of investment theory, then normally it's when investors are either most fearful or most negative um, that you know your valuations are the most attractive. So I certainly think. Oops. Koki, I'm sorry, man. We are losing you. We're losing you. Um, perhaps, Koki, Koki, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm going to have to phone him back, Dave. That's uh, not the kind of line that we can we can uh, impose upon our uh, community, I'm afraid. But let's see if we let's see if it comes through clearer this time round. Okay, I'll pull Corky back in when we do manage to establish comms with him again. Such a pity that uh, oh. that we haven't been able to to get him in here. But I think last time you said, ah, oh, there we go. Let's just see. Corky, can you hear us now? Yeah. Okay, that's a better line. I can, line. I can. We, I lo can. we lost you yeah. a moment ago. Do you want to just pick up from uh, you were answering that last question about the first round share price? Yeah, essentially that um, – you know, when investors are at the most fearful is when you get your best opportunities. The problem is obviously is that there are some real changes taking place. And, you know, and obviously that's always the case when valuations are cheap. So you didn't want to buy the horse buggy industry in, in, in 1904, 1910. Um, but, you know, all our work shows that, you know, interest rates, even where they are now, the good banks like First National, um, recover. And so I think the market is more reacting to very high bad debts, uh, which next year, uh, you know, will start uh, looking better again. So next year's results should be a lot stronger and the year thereafter. So it's more the second problem that is, that is facing South African banks is obviously now just, you know, the whole political situation. Uh, what happens to the country, what happens to funding, what happens to, you know, does the private sector get crowded out? And all those things together make it very difficult for investors to believe in, in South African Incorporated and especially banks who, who would be funding mm. uh, the growth that we need. I'm putting another graph up on the screen, uh, and this shows the P-E ratio of first rand. And David, apart from the uh, the, the decline, the sharp decline there, which was obviously the PE ratio was being based on the previous set of financial results. As you can see, where it is now, based on the most recent set of financial results, the first round PE ratio around about 12. And what that means for those who, who are a little confused by these terms, it means the number of years of profits uh, first round has to make to, for you investing today to get your money back. So it's around 12 years at the current price. That isn't out of line uh, with the long-term uh, with a long-term story. It, it's, it's not like it's very, very cheap as it was in, uh, in 2014 and then in, in 2010. David? Yeah, Alec, it depends whether or not you believe the results. By believing the results, um, if these results are true results, you know, that we've just been, um, that have been published, uh, then it's not cheap. But I think those are the questions that, I, you know, I've got three big questions here that I want to ask both Alan and uh, Koki. 
about this, you know, particularly that a lot of the um, the profit or the fall in profit was generated because of very, very large provisions. And one's got to analyze that. Already you heard Cocky saying, oh, next year there'll be a reversal of bad debts. You know, in other words, it won't be so bad. Therefore, profits will bounce back. So we've got to ask those, you know, those are the questions that we've got to ask of Alan. Well, you know, you're the man who's putting these entries through. Yeah. <laughs> How confident you are, are you that, uh, you know, you've overprovided or is it is it really uh, a lot of difficulties ahead that we're facing? So, you know, when you start to look at multiples like the P.E. ratio, um, you've got to start projecting forward and saying, OK, so what are we going to see ahead of us? How are results going to reflect next two to three years? And then we'll decide what multiple to buy the shares on. So there are a lot of questions that we have. And Cookie's also brought up some other issues around the country and you know, around the finances of the country and the whole structure of this economy, which are very important to understand as well. And just to remind you that uh, the reason we have this webinar for the Biz News Premium members or our club members is because we uh, encourage your questions. So if you would like to pose a question, you're welcome to do so. Uh, it's very easy. There's a little question mark uh, on the uh, pop-up box that you have there. Just type in the question and away we go. Well, uh, Alan Pullenjasi is on the... Uh, screen, or rather, he has joined us. Alan, I hope uh, you can you can see us. Um, and if you can just, uh, I'll just send you a webcam. There we go. Alan, I'm there. There we go. We can hear you. Uh, we can't see you yet, though. Okay, hold on. Uh. There we go. Okay, you you loud and clear, David. Um, hi, Alan. Hi, David. Hi, Cookie. hi, Alan. Good, good to hi. see you, man, and and uh, and thanks for joining us today. <laughs> also, same shirt, relaxed. <laughs> yeah, I've got long sleeves. <laughs> Cookie, for as long as your uh, your comms hold, I think we should give you the, uh, the 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 lion's share of the discussion. Do you want to uh, just pose your first question to Alan on those results last week? Yeah, I, I think, um, Alec, if, if I can pursue David's line of reasoning, uh, and David is questioning whether these provisions that have been made in this set of results uh, are, will either be enough, but I think the more important question is whether it's recurring. Now, remember, the provisions were very large as a percentage of both income and as a percentage of the loan book. So all the past cycles over the last 30, 40 years that we've studied, and so far what we hear from all other banks over the world, that they think that the provisions they're making due to IFRS 9 now should be enough. But there is a risk that bad debts do come through. So whether they're enough or not for this, for where we are now, is one question. But the second one is we thinking, as, as people saying banks are cheap, that next year these provisions won't be repeated. And I think that's an important question, whether this is a peak and then it starts tailing off as it normally does when the economy picks up. Yeah, Koki, I mean, I think you're right. 
So uh, often the comparison is made uh, sort of where we are now relative to the to the GFC. And at the GFC, you remember we were dealing with IS39, which is the previous accounting uh, standard, and now we've got IFRS9. And there's a big difference between the two. So the previous standard that dealt with um, bad debts and provisions, you only raised the provisions on an incurred basis. So where you saw banks raising significant provisions, you could then conclude that they had a bad debt problem. With this new accounting standard, it's all forward-looking. And so it, 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 it requires you to front load an enormous amount of provisions for bad debts that may eventuate. So it's all model driven and I'm not going to get into in, into a whole heap of detail, but it is around are your assumptions conservative enough? And two big assumptions that we've had to make, one is around our outlook on, on GDP growth and then the other one is what we think is going to happen to unemployment. So there are a whole lot of assumptions, but those are two material ones. And of course, it, the models then predict uh, uh, what kind of bad debts may happen and then you need to front load those uh, the, those provisions. And so that's what you've seen. Uh, and you're right. I mean, uh, you know, I've, just to give you a sense of the provision buildup, uh, you know, if we go sort of in six month blocks, and I do that only because all of this stuff has really happened in the last sort of four months of our financial year. If we go in six month blocks, we were raising sort of provision for bad debts of around five and a half billion, 5.8 billion, that sort of range per six month reporting period. Um, and in the last six months, we raised 18.4 billion. So that just gives you the, the sense of a, of a massive buildup in provisions. Now, I think Koki's right. The question now is, you know, are we going to need the provisions? Uh, and that's all going to you know, depend on what happens to our underlying portfolios and what happens to collections. So I can give you some insight into what has happened in July and August. And both of those months on collections and portfolio management, it's better than what we thought. So we were expecting a much more difficult sort of collection period. It's turning out better. But I'm going to just caution here because, you know, two months doesn't mean you multiply that by six and that gives you a sense of what can happen for the full year. The second thing is that we've, we've still got customers that are in cash flow relief or for forbearance or, you know, payment holidays, and they are, they are still coming out of it in cohorts. So not everybody went in in, in the first you know, in, in April, um, and they sort of had April, May, June. Some only went into it in May. Some only went into it in June. And so we've still got sort of cohorts of customers to come out of, of payment relief and then pick up the discipline around uh, around their, their repayments. And then the second factor is, is the wind down of the TERS relief. So, you know, TERS, many of our customers have been making access of TERS um, but now that is also sort of washing out through the system. And then I guess when that ends, a lot of employees who were no longer on sort of business payrolls are going to go back to those businesses and say, well, guess what? I'm back and I'm back on your payroll. And then our concern is that some businesses may say, well, you know, we've also been doing some thinking over lockdown and we need to right size or, or whatever it is. And, and that's when we start seeing a pickup in unemployment. So there's a lot of risk, I think, in the system. And we've probably got probably another six months to really get a good feel on the data and what's happening to collections. Alan, I've put on the 
uh, on on the the chart here that from your presentation, and it really does show it there around five billion, five and a half, six billion, and then um, eighteen and a half billion. And I guess the question that that everybody has on first round and and from the preparation that we had earlier is about that is is that too much was that too much you say in the first two months it looks like you were conservative when will you have an understanding when will you be able to tell the market exactly uh, how that uh, whether that 18 and a half was highly conservative or not yeah uh, Alec, I, th I think at our interim so which we report in in march next year you know i think there we'll have a very good sense of how we've come out of sort of payment relief what's happened to the portfolios you know what was the december period like uh i think by you know i think if there's going to be a big pickup in un unemployment i think by march next year it, it would have shown itself um so so i think that's probably the next big opportunity that we'll have david Um, so the, que the, the question we have to ask Alan, and I know it's a very difficult one, is whether he's ultra-cautious or ultra-worried. I mean, you know, what are the signs? I know that there's been a pickup in that, but, but how, are you, how are you reading the economy? Uh, you know, what signs are you seeing that, because I'm going to follow up, there are a couple of other questions that I do want to ask you, which are quite important, particularly in the position that you that you fulfill. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to know what your reading of the economy is. Okay, it's a good, it's a good question, David. Uh, I guess, you know, one of the problems we've, we've got is we, we entered into this pandemic crisis with a, a, a very weak economy, and in fact, an economy that had been weakening for many, many years. So that's the first point is, it's not as if we, we're not talking about first round, I'm talking about, you know, SA Inc. Uh, and the fiscal position. So we were weak going into the crisis. I think things have got materially worse um, for, 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 for us on, on that front. Um, and then the second point is, when we look at a lot of countries around the world, what they've done is they've been able to essentially act in a in a sort of counter cyclical way with with relief. So there's enormous relief that has gone, uh, you know, from from central banks, other sort of monetary relief, fiscal relief, um, you know, other sorts of 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 sort of real subsidy to to try and and sort of reignite economies, look after um, you know a livelihoods. Unfortunately, in South Africa, we've we've we, 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 you know, we've been massively fiscally constrained. So the, the, if we look at the percentage of, of real true relief that has gone uh, into the South African economy um, as a percentage of GDP, I mean, we are very, very low in the world. So although we've been hit pretty hard by, uh, by this pandemic, uh, and you've seen the sort of the GDP uh, destruction that has taken place, um, actually, the the real relief that's gone in has has been low, and it's not. It's certainly not because you know we have a miserly government and national treasury is you know is kind of sitting on their hands. I think they've done everything that they could do within their means. But unfortunately, you know we we never went into this pandemic with buffers. Um, you know we 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 were on the back foot already, um, and so it's a it's a very tough it's a tough tough place that we find ourselves in, and I suppose. You know, the reason we are a little bit cautious is, yes, we're going to get through this pandemic and we will have to see 
obviously how much of these provisions we need for bad debts, how much we can write back. But ultimately, when it is behind us, you know, we do come back to the hard reality of 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 the state of of the nation, um, and and our debt path is is very worrying. I think there's uh, you know National Treasury has certainly sort of depicted what uh, a, an active managed path would would look like. Of course, that looks much much more palatable. But there's two big there's two big deliverables that that we're going to need if we're going to if we're going to see that happen and you know one is sort of eye watering expenditure cuts I mean they're truly gigantic um, and are we going to get you know have we got the political will and are we actually going to get those expenditure cuts and those happen sort of over the next three or four years and even if we can get the expenditure cuts those cuts in and of themselves are not sufficient. For us to get that debt path on top of it we need gdp growth which then also talks about at the same time of the expenditure cuts getting you know uh, execution of a whole lot of of reforms that the, that the economy needs so you have to say when you add that up it's a it's a gigantic task that we had of you know we have ahead of us and this is and i'm not, I'm not even talking about the pandemic here mm. Alan, on the screen, we've got what made the headlines. Sorry, I'm, I'm actually just going to mute you while we, the rest of us talk. There we go. Um, on the screen, we have what grabbed the headlines after your financial results. And that was the philosophy or the thought that it's going to take five years for the South African economy to come back. Just, just elaborate a little bit for us because, and, and why that's so relevant for first rand. Uh, and and your way going forward. Um, it it is it's it's. I mean, I I guess it's it's the extent of of the weakness that we've got. So although you're going to see a technical bounce, um, you know, off these sort of very low uh, sort of levels of of GDP, I think they do become constrained, um, and 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 they start. You know, that recovery starts flattening out as we approach what we call our, our long-term potential growth rate uh, in the country. And unfortunately, that, that long-term potential growth rate has been in decline. So, you know, we would probably say South Africa without structural reform is, is probably going to struggle longer term to grow at anything, you know, much more than 1%. And if you know, and if you ask why, I mean, a good example, and and I don't want to make it about Eskom, but a good example would be, for example, our, our energy story. Um, you know, if the economy had to pick up significantly from these levels and grow at a much faster rate, the question is, have we got the energy to supply into into a growing economy? And right and right now we're constrained. So that is is one example of, of sort of a dampener that's put on on our on our recovery. Um, and I think the, the other thing that that we showed on on that graph was we sort of just mapped the recovery profile of South Africa and the UK. You know, we do have a, a banking presence in the UK, and we show that although the UK suffered a very sharp contraction, in fact, the, the sharpest in in Europe, its its ability to bounce back is is quicker. And one, I think I, I spoke about that sort of that that the stimulus that's gone into that economy in the UK, it's it's truly been ginormous. I mean, it's it's literally 350 billion sterling that they've pumped into that economy. Now they've had the fiscal space to do it, um, and we do then see the UK getting back to their trend growth rate of about one to one and a half percent quicker. Than, than we are going to do here in South Africa. 
Corky, I'm going to uh, just mute Alan again so we don't. There we go. Okay, we got you loud and clear, Corky. Uh, do you want to pose your next question, please? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Alan's given a lot of food for thought and 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 almost confirms one's worst fears. And it's still basically the same question. We 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 just cannot model as analysts. It's very difficult to model the path South Africa is going to follow. You know, worst case, you do you follow? Do you just go the Argentinian route? Do you go Zimbabwean route? And we've been looking at, at, at what banks did in, in those countries. Um, but if we go into the severe cost-cutting exercise, um, you know, then also the economy is going to contract. Um, so my, my original question, part of it was, is, is this provision going to be enough? But and and that we can still speculate, and that's COVID-related. But more longer term, you know, in most other countries in the world, the size of the provisions we've seen won't be repeated next year and the year thereafter. So in South Africa, what Alan is saying, you know, um, yeah, we might see continued higher provisions if the economy keeps deteriorating. And I, and I think, um, you know, so that is, the, and I don't think that's an answerable question at the moment, but it would be interesting to have that. Because first and have of all the banks been the most conservative. You can even see that in the loan growth at the moment where they have been actually standing back, effectively almost losing market share. So maybe the question to Alan is how do you see at the moment, uh, are you trying to gain market share or are you just sitting back and really fortifying yourself? Great question. Uh, let's um, unmute you. There we go, Alan. Thanks. Um, yeah, thanks, Koki. Um, I, I guess, man, maybe the way to think about, uh, you know, we, we, what is the outlook for first round? I mean, let's just take a, a three-year view. Um, you know, we do think there's there's still a muted year ahead of us. So, so we gave guidance. Uh, to the market that we thought June 21 year end um, is unlikely to match the absolute level of earnings that we posted in June 20. And a couple of reasons, you know, one, one is that we don't see a, a materially improved situation on the, um, on the impairment line. Um, so that we're not really going to get significant help there. We think that's probably still going to take uh, you know, probably eight or nine months before we start seeing data that we can put into models that really start talking about provision release. So that, you know, I, I've, I've realized with IFRS 9, it's easy to get these provisions, you know, into the models, but but once you talk about releasing them, it's a little sticky on, on the way out. So we're going to need data before we can start releasing those. The second thing, and I, I think this is a big issue for the banks, is is their endowment return. So, you know, while, while of course, very low interest rates help the consumers and businesses that have debt, there's a big negative for the banks because we, we, we have very large endowment books. Our endowment books are really made up of our capital and all of the non-rate liabilities that we, that we sit with. Now, the reason banks need endowment is because it's a, if you like, it's an internal hedge in, in the bank for, for, for bad debts. So typically what you would find is when you find interest rates going up, uh, you that obviously 
uh, you know, it, it presents a risk around the accumulation of bad debts. So affordability comes under pressure, and typically you see in a rising rate cycle that bad debts start to grow. But what you also find, which offsets that for banks, is that their return on the endowment books goes up. So you have that, if you like, that hedge against bad debts. The problem that we've got now in this pandemic is you've got very low policy rates, um, almost at historic lows, and so the endowment that the banks earn is 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 very low. But the the difficulty that we have now, it's not as if this is helping bad debts, because what's happened with this pandemic is actually incomes have come under significant pressure, um, and that that that's really what is 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 driving. I think this 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 bad debt story. It's not an interest rate driven problem. So the banks have sort of got the worst of both worlds. We've still got bad debts because of the pandemic, but we've also got a very low endowment. And the reason, and the way this sort of plays into Cocky's question is, you know, what are we doing with uh, with origination now? And I guess we are, you know, we, we we've we've re-looked at our scorecards and our and, and we've made certain risk cuts because incomes haven't fully recovered. So uh, we spoke about this when we when we posted results. When we looked at the data from March to April, um, incomes on average, and this is in our retail business where we have, uh, you know, like seven million uh, customers, payrolls into our bank accounts declined month on month by 20%. And then we saw some recovery in, you know, in the subsequent months, but even where we are today, they are probably still about 5% below where we were pre-COVID. And that 5% matters a lot. It plays out differently across different segments, um, but but bottom line, you know, incomes have taken a hit. And, and, I, and I think a lot of people listening to this will appreciate that. You know, many people have had a 0% increase in salary or they've had their salary cut. And a lot of people, you know, rely rely every year on a, on a 13th check or a 14th check or a little bit of a bonus. But I mean, those things are just not part of this world that we're in at the moment. So all of that, I think from a cash cash flow perspective, has kind of got to wash through the system. So we're a little cautious on on origination i i you know i spoke about that three-year outlook you know we definitely see year two and then year three of of that three-year story being sort of a multi-year growth picture for for first rand um you know we we much much more constructive i think in the outer years but you know we are i think if we're going to give guidance to the market we are rather being quite cautious over the next sort of eight or nine months Alan, there's a question here from Russell Henry who says, is the relationship, apologies, I'm actually just, uh, I don't know why the, uh, I'm just going to mute you again, okay. Okay, so Russell's question is, is the relationship between government and the banking sector moving in a constructive and positive direction? Yeah, well, government is a, oh, that's a big word. Um, I think we have a very good relationship um, as a banking sector, certainly with the central bank. Um, so Saab, we have a very good relationship with National Treasury. Um, I think we are very aligned with a policy direction that comes out of National Treasury. In fact, we're big supporters of the that economic recovery plan that, that was published uh, by National Treasury. So uh, I think there the relationship is very good. Um, and we certainly see the world, I think, through 
through um, similar lenses. I think it becomes more difficult if you start talking more broadly right across government. Um, and that's not really an issue, I think, for, for the banking sector alone. I mean, I think equally National Treasury themselves, I think, sometimes struggle with with those internal uh, conversations. Um, and a good example would be the debate that is that is uh, raging at the moment. Um, as you know, it's all over the press. It's, it's you know, what to do with SAA. Um, and, and there, I think National Treasury has been outspoken. I think you've seen the response from the banks over, you know, the last well years. Um, you know, we've we've struggled, I think, with SAA as as an SOE. Um, but the debate is still there, firmly firmly on the table. You know, and this is a conversation that the banks are having, you know, right now. In fact, you know, it was over the weekend, and and it continues now in the next couple of days. So we are getting to sort of a crunch point um, in that. But but I think that's just a good example of sort of the the dilemma and the indecision that we that we sit with as a as a government, and then and then you extrapolate that you know across you know lots of other sort of realms of government, and then you understand why we are struggling as a country to make progress. You know, it's it's not it's not because we have a lack of plans. Uh, indeed, I think we're drowning in plans. What what we're struggling with here is is implementation, um, and then just sort of to Cocky's point around. You know, what do we track uh, around the recovery of the country? I mean, I think there's three things for us to look at. Look at. You know, one would be intent uh, to get things right by government. Number two, I think, would be implementation. And then number three, post-implementation would be tracking success. So are the reforms having the desired um, effect? And I think with, you know, so I think on implementation, uh, sorry, intent, I think there genuinely, I think there does seem to be lots of 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 will to get things done. So I certainly hear, you know, from the president, national treasury, um, certainly from cabinet, intent seems to be there. So let's give that a tick. I think we've got strong intent on implementation. To be honest, you know, I I, I think there too. The only the only word you can you can say is is okay. It's 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 not evident. So we have no real track record. If we look at history, I think we should remain skeptical uh, and take an approach which which says, listen, when we see it, we we will believe it. And then, of course, obviously, we can't track success because there hasn't been implementation. But once we start getting implementation, you know, that then you'll be able to track it in terms of of the data. David Shapiro. Do you want to uh, give us your next question, please? I, yeah, I do. I, I do. I, just, Alan, you know, you mentioned real relief is low and you said implementation, uh, there's no evidence of implementation. Um, nobody wanted this. Nobody wanted this lockdown. Nobody wanted this position. And government in imposing us really closed down a lot of businesses. These chaps were the restaurants, the you know, all different, the hairdressers and all those businesses. Um, it's not their fault that they find themselves in this position. People have lost their jobs. Do we not just hand out money? In other words, government wants to get small and medium companies going again. They want to get them um, active. Um, they're not going to borrow money because I think every loan has got an obligation to repay under certain circumstances. Do we not go into a situation and say, here, here's the money, 10 billion, whatever it is, five to 10 billion rand, make it available to these companies and say, when you can pay back, 
In other words, get them going, almost paying for a degree, you know, like going to a student and saying, look, go to university, pay me back when you qualify it somewhere down the line. You know, that person will get a job and start repaying. But I find it very frustrating, you know, that, that we've got such a low level of uh, response to the programs that have been put there. Do we not just say, here, take the money? I've got some other questions as well. There's a, there's a no. plan I want you to help me with. <laughs> Uh, just to just to uh, pick up on that one as well, Alan, and I put on the screen uh, from your presentation that the majority of customers did not require COVID-19 relief. Now, is that because they didn't want to put more debt onto their balance sheets or did they genuinely, were they genuinely okay? Were they able to just come out of this without a problem? Yeah, um, okay, I know. I, 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 I share this, the, the sentiments that, um, that David's expressed here. On the on the relief, I mean, it yeah. So we say so you know roughly 20% of our of our loan book across across sort of retail, commercial, and sort of corporate needed um, some help. I guess I guess you know many people may have had savings. Um, they may have had buffers. They they that they, they could get through it. They didn't have high levels of, of indebtedness, so they could manage through. Of the percentage of our customers um, that that needed relief, we really needed to put them sort of into two categories. And and so one category was they were in good standing prior to the arrival of the pandemic, um, and they are now in some difficulty, or they are expressing a risk that they may get into difficulty because of the pandemic. So we solved. That was that was really where the, the bulk of the of the focus went. Of course, we had some customers who were already in difficulty prior to the arrival of the pandemic, and the pandemic has just made things things worse. I think that became a much much sort of more difficult um, customer base to deal with. Now, the a, a, a lot of date a lot of has been said around the loan guarantee scheme um, that was announced by the president, uh, essentially a national treasury scheme, where they spoke about 200 billion um, of, 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 of essentially um, facility that the banks could use um, to, to help their customers. Now, I think the point David raises is an important one. It is a, it's a loan scheme. Um, and that, that money does need to be paid back. And, and again, it comes to this point that as a fiscus, we simply cannot afford to dish out grant money or money on the basis that if it can come back, that's great. But if it doesn't, well, okay, we, we, we prepare to write it off. We simply don't have that capacity. Um, and if you look at, if you look at where the country's debt to GDP is at the moment, it's about 80% of, of, of our, of, of GDP is indebtedness and pretty much 20 cents in every rand of revenue. That the government gets now goes to debt service. Now, so when you look at that and you look at where that path is likely to take us, if we don't manage this debt scenario, it essentially gets to almost 50 cents in every rand of of revenue that the government collects will be going to interest. And it 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 essentially what happens is you 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 just get into the power of of compound interest. You realize that the country's productivity its ability to grow out of this debt is just is just not there. You know, many countries, of course, have taken on enormous amounts of debt 
with uh, with this pandemic. And so there is a tolerance, I think, for international investors when they look at different countries, there's a tolerance for increased debt. So we've got a window, I think, yeah, uh, where I think foreign investors will tolerate this for some some time. We've got we've, we've got another problem, though, in this country where we've got two big problems. One is that unlike many countries that have taken on an enormous amount of debt, their interest rates are close to. Unfortunately, here in South Africa, we have a very steep yield curve, yield curve. and so our interest rates are, 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 are actually very, very high in, in global terms. So we've got a real a debt service burden that comes with this indebtedness. The second problem that we've got, unlike many other countries that have taken on debt, is they've got much higher levels of productivity. And it does ultimately come down to productivity because if you are highly productive, innovative, hardworking economy, you can you can work your way out of debt, just like a business that takes on a lot of debt. If it has very attractive margins, if it has high production, it can work its way through a debt burden. But the problem we've had is we've had declining um, and the long-term trends around, around our productivity outlook are, are, if anything, worsening. Mm. Alan, we've got a, quite a few questions here that uh, that came from the community and of course Koki is uh, I'm sure champing at the bit but let me just give you a couple of them and, and perhaps we can pick it up. Dion Mayberg says uh, what would it take two or three big hitters to reverse the gloomy SA Inc forecast growth rates and who should take the lead from here the public or the private sector and then uh, Skulk uh, Kearney asks what about performing um, do you need additional funding in other words the opportunity missed by bank to by banks to put more money into the system do you want to just pick up on those two and then we go back to Koki? unmuted okay good um yeah because it's a good question who moves first sort of this chicken and egg um, scenario uh, you know, I think if you look at where the savings sit in the country, and, and as a country, we do have enorm enormous savings. So I think between the sort of the banks and the, the, the pension funds, the sort of the contractual savings in the country, there, there's an enormous amount of, of savings and also in, in, in the corporate space. So I think there's savings, um, but what you've seen is, is a reluctance to invest. And I guess it should be no strange, you know, it's not a strange comment to it, people are on this call, is that investment ultimately requ requires a belief that the future is going to be better. I mean, that's essentially at the heart of, a, of investment. You're going to invest now because you think you're going to get attractive returns and the future is going to be better. So right now, if we look at all the data, unfortunately, it's not trending in, in the right direction. And what we're going to need to see is, is on top of intent, which we think is genuine um, and, it, and, it, and it's been well expressed, we are going to need to see some reforms. We have to see some evidence that there's implementation of some things to, to make the country better. It doesn't have to be everything, but I think if there's a couple of things, even if they are easy, I think it's going to start lifting confidence. And that I'm sure that's also been spoken about on the show, but consumer confidence and business confidence is very low. Um, and it's not all due to the pandemic. It, pandemic, it was low before we got into this uh, into this difficult patch. So we, I think, those things with with lifting confidence and people starting to feel better about the future. I think then you will see those savings being um, being brought to brought to the fore, and I think you'll start seeing investment. 
And I do think it has to start with the private sector in South Africa. And when they start to invest, I think foreigners then will start to take notice. They'll say, well, the, the domestic players are starting to invest. Maybe we must jump in. But they typically don't, don't lead an investment cycle. They, they, they typically want to follow where the domestics are. Um, I do think you know one of the one of the dynamics that that we spoke about, and it, it's important for the banking sector, is that there is a recovery coming. And when that when that comes, of course, the banks need capital. It's it's very important for for the banks. It's the rocket fuel for banks. Without capital, even if you've got all the desire uh, and you've got lots of liquidity, you simply can't grow your balance sheets without capital. So it's very important that the banks uh, accrete capital. Uh, over this period. It's something First Rand has spoken a lot about. We we thankfully went into this crisis with a very healthy capital position and, and we're going to intend to accrete capital. So when that growth comes, we've got the rocket fuel um, to do it. So we we are preparing ourselves for for a growth story. Um, and, and so hopefully that's, that's going to help, I guess, get, get the, some of this economy moving. Well, Corky, let's uh, bring you back in here because the Many of those who are listening, who are on the webinar today or will be listening to the recording are going to want to know whether they should be buying South African banking shares. Now, you've heard a lot of uh, of what Alan said. Are there any questions there that uh, you need to pose to clarify uh, the answer to that question, which I'm going to ask you at the end of the show? Yeah, Alec, um, maybe just first. I mean, I've, I've, I'm finding Alan to be remarkably or no, incredibly um, open and honest about the situation we're in and, and highlighting the problem that this isn't a quick turn unless there's a massive ideological change in government thinking uh, just in terms of craft, cadre, cadre employment, tendering processes, etc., etc., letting the private sector do its work. But we live in that situation. So I would maybe two points we haven't spoken about um, in terms of, and Alan has been maybe too blunt, painting a bleak picture for, for first round, focusing more on that second and third year where you said you will start uh, once you're through this year, is the one aspect is uh, cost. Your cost to income ratio is already very good compared to, to the other banks. But what we've seen globally is the process of digitalization um, and branchless banking has been accelerating. And this time it's actually client-led. Clients are actually started moving away from branches. So there must be a big cost element that you can improve on in the bank, which will help your income statement. So if I'm just looking at your income statements year two and year three out, the absolute level of bad debt charge in the income statement should come down. You might still need the provisions, but the absolute level of interest, uh, uh, bad debt charge should come down. The cost should either come down or stay the same. And that means that you will get positive leverage of loan growth that you get, get even if it is low. So whether you buy banks or not at the moment, it depends on if the outlook is enough that the banks can do to actually get their return on capitals back to 15, 16, 17, 18%. Koki, uh, what is it going to take? And I've put on the screen here your top 10 holdings in your fund, your international fund, uh, where there's not a South African bank amongst them. What is it going to take for you to start buying South African banks again? President Cyril Ramaphosa 
announcing that uh, he's, he's changing his cabinet dramatically. He's bringing in people who understand the importance of capital coming in internationally and, uh, you know, some guys being sent to jail uh, that shows that we're really getting, uh, you know, to the end of uh, a gravy train for government. I mean, you, you really need uh, not valuations here. You need to demonstrate that you want to serious about attracting capital from the outside and, and you understand why that capital has fled and why it's not coming back at the moment. So that's the reality of it. And most investors will be perceiving South African bank shares the same way you're looking at them. They've got a whole world to choose from. So it's no longer valuations. It's it's a bigger story. Yes, yes. Now, sadly for Alan, we haven't spoken about, you know, the ex-Aldermore, the business they bought in the UK, which will most probably grow as a percentage of the total business. But for, for first rounds, they're actually still too small. But I think even first round, I mean, Capitec has shown how a bank can grow uh, simply in a in a bad ten year period, and first round has shown that as well. I mean, they they've done the best in terms of the quality of the books, quality of the capital. So there's still a lot of market share to be taken um, once that appetite comes back. They can they can take a lot away from the other banks who might not react as quickly uh, and might not have the same amount of capital available to them. Once, once we're in a better situation. And I think the, really the picture, Alan, that most uh, of the business community are wanting to know is exactly what Corky was saying. Two to three years out, is there going to be that rebound? Uh, is it? Let's just take the two scenarios. And the one scenario, if there is no change uh, or radical economic transformation, which which now seems to be needed, but of course not in the way that the Zuma arts were thinking, uh, how would that affect a first round? And if there were to be some kind of a radical change, how would that impact uh, your business? Yeah, Alec, I mean, on those, I mean, we, I spoke about the three-year story. I mean, we do think year two and year three sees a strong recovery for first round. Um, you know, and we what we are saying is we're saying in those outer years, we will get back to our our, our guided ROE of 18 to 22%. You know, for some time we've been operating at the higher end of, of that range. In fact, out the, out, you know, above the top end of, of that range. But we would say that, um, you know, in those outer years of, of that three-year sort of horizon, we would get certainly into the bottom end of that uh, 18 to 22%. Just to touch on Corky's point on cost, I mean, I think that's that's right. I think this whole digitization sort of platform, ecosystem, network effects, all of that stuff, and the customer adoption that has happened into digital channels, I think it is clearly it's playing out inefficiencies. Uh, we, as a group, you know, we, we when we invest in new technologies, new systems, we don't capitalize them on our balance sheet. We we have a tendency to expense all of these through through the income statement. So while we're getting efficiencies on the on the one hand, we're also investing kind of in this new digital world, uh, and we build our insurance businesses, etc. But but I think Porky's right. I think in time you are going to see those efficiencies play out. The reason we would we would be cautious over the next 12 months, I mentioned the the impact of the endowment. But just to give you a sense of that. I mean, in this next financial year, we've got about 240 basis points of, of rate cuts to take through our endowment. 
Uh, and just to give you a sense of our, our endowment, it's about 274 billion. That's the size of the endowment. So if you take 240 basis points on 274 billion and we hedge about 50 percent of, of, of our endowment return. So if you take that, you know, you're going to get close to 3.3 billion of, of lost NII before we even start the year, you know, and that just to give you a sense of that and, and, it, and it just sort of it explains the, the, the magnitude of, of the rate cut that we've had. That's about 5% of our NII gets lost essentially on day one. I mean, unless we see rates uh, picking up significantly from this level. And then the other point is that, you know, in the, in the pandemic on the 1st of July, we had to announce our, all of our price increases for our transactional products. Uh, out of FNB, and all of those those price increases, were, you know, all came out at zero percent. So we've helped the customers in terms of kind of no price increases on on products, and we've also got kind of that impact to wash through. So we just think the next twelve months is, uh, you know, a bit of a tough one. But then, as I say, year two and year three look better. I I I mean I I hear Corky on on what he would like, you know, in terms of 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 sort of confidence uh, building moves. I. I suppose if I stand back, I mean, I, it is probably about the team. So when we look at government, you know, essentially it's a team that is going to need to take us as a country through a very, very difficult period. Uh, and I suppose, you know, we, you know, from the president down, we've got to say, listen, is is this team going to be able to do it? I mean, I guess that's the that's the call that 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 one has to make. Um, and and I heard there were rumours certainly a week ago or so around a cabinet reshuffle. We haven't seen anything. I think there's some ministers that are doing a particularly, you know, particularly well. I think they're very focused on, on the reform agenda. I think they are, they understand the importance of attracting both domestic capital and foreign, foreign capital. I think they, 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 they widely respect it. Um, so we certainly need more of them. And, and I think we just need alignment. You know, it's just, it's the sense sense of urgency and alignment, um, you know, and perhaps less less consensus building and more let's let's just get stuff done. Um, you know, we've got some tough medicine to take, I think, as a country, and and we've got to be up for it. You know, and 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 actually, it, and it isn't really about us. You know, and the current people in leadership, it's actually about about our children. It's it's about the it's about the youngsters in the country. You know, and and we need to be able to say to youngsters in the country this is an attractive place this is a you know you you, you can live here have a great career um and build a great country you know that's who we've got to talk to at the end of the day uh alan we coming to the end of the of the program today but uh, david shapiro uh, does have at least one more question i'm sure dave do you want to just uh, get your best one Give your best shot. I think I, I think that was such a great note to end off. You know, I, I don't want to spoil it, but I'm going to ask Alan just one short question. Uh, listening to both you and to Cocky, are we overbanked? You know, are they? Because this is a country. You said that we need to grow output. We need, to, in other words, we need to grow the economy, and yet we seem to be creating more banks and more financial institutions rather than companies that that make things and do things. You know, that we can sell. Um, you know, and, and every result that comes out, there's somebody now, new who wants to eat your lunch or wants to do things better than you've done for the past hundred or so years. And that, you know, is this, is there just too much emphasis on banking and, and, and fintech? 
And maybe to uh, just add to that, Discovery Bank, who seemed to be growing quite rapidly. Uh, maybe a thought on that, Alan? Yeah, good good question to end on. I mean, let me make a couple of comments. So one, I think competition is is very important for the sector. Um, and we've, you know, we've seen, for example, you know, 20 years, you know, we've seen a Capitec grow from a business which was, you know, a small little upstart and everyone said it wasn't going to scale. And, and then it managed to scale. And then we said, well, its growth will slow down. And then its growth didn't slow down. You know, and eventually you've seen sort of the big four banks have sort of shifted up, up on the bench and we've made space for Capitec. And we put our arms around them. And now we talk about the big five. And so you can see what can happen um, in, in, in this economy with, you know, with entrepreneurs, with capital, with sort of a passion, a good strategy. You can definitely build something. And so we welcome the competition. I think it does keep the incumbents uh, on their toes. And, and we've got some new entrants who have entered the market. I do think for the new smaller players who are trying to make progress, I, I, I think they've got their work cut out for them. Um, you know, it's not that the incumbents haven't got the the cool tech and the digital solutions and that they have got it and so i think it's going to be very tough to grow uh, a business in 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 what is it going to be i think a very difficult uh, economy just to sort of david's point i mean are we overbanked I, I suppose a couple of points there uh david that that would be interesting you know one if we look at our economy and the makeup of the economy and we look at what contribution financial services plays in the South African economy. It's quite a high percentage. Um, and maybe that's that, that's in, intuitive because if you say, well, it's 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 a very well regarded, sort of first world, if you like, banking system. Um, and it's and it's not just banking, it's also insurance. I mean we're one of the most penetrated markets for for insurance products uh, in the world, you know, short term and 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 life, etc. So financial services has has an enormous contribution of the pie in in south africa and so is it is it is it easy to envisage that that percentage contribution is going to grow perhaps not um perhaps it's already you know too large but it is it is what it is um and i think that that's probably one data point the other data point of course is given what's happened with this pandemic it is likely that when we get through it we may well find an economy that has shrunk by a couple of percent. So just in terms of, you know, absolute size of the economy, as I say, it's one, it's gonna take us time to get back to where we were, but two, you know, we may come back as a as a 90% economy because we've we've truly lost some of our capital base through, through this pandemic. Um, and so the question then is you've got the same banks, but you've got a smaller e e economy. So, so that may say, listen, it's going to be tough there, and and you're going to have some winners who are going to take some market share but you might find for for those that have got you know poor customer propositions or or, or you know are, are, are not that kind of on the front foot of that but on the back foot i think it's going to be a much much tougher um sort of banking market and then maybe as a sort of a last point sort of ideological point i mean this is this is why it's so crazy when we when we have debates around the creation of a state bank I mean, this, this topic has not gone away. It's still on the agenda, you know, and why we would want as a country, I think, to put resources into a state bank when, when we've already got, you know, very well-regarded established players, but, but perhaps, you know, maybe there's too much banking capacity already. So those would be my, 
my, my, my comments to, to David. Alan, thank you very much for the uh, 45 minutes that you gave us. Uh, we appreciate uh, your your time and um, it, it was very good again to have the opportunity to uh, to go into a little more detail with our experts. Um, David Shapiro and and uh, Corky Koyman, your final thoughts. Uh, I know you uh, you now have to tell us whether the business community should be jumping in and buying the first grand shares. Dave, do you want to oh, start? Koki uh, <laughs> first. Koki wants to follow you. Uh, you know, there's been so much said in this hour. Uh, we could do it with another hour. It's it's just fascinating. Mm -hmm. Even just like the state bank idea is one of the dumbest ever. But okay. Fintech, very tough. It's, it's, it's not nice to be small. And ask Michael Yordan as well. It takes a lot more money. Ask Discovery Bank. It takes a lot of capital mm. to grow. But if you, if you, if you really look at banking now to summarize, there are two cycles at play here. The one is the whole investment cycle where money has gone into growth stocks, into tech stocks and indiscriminately pushing them to very high valuations. And so if we see globally at some stage interest rates come back or just that cycle end, money will come back into good value stocks and the banks, they stand out. But you do need growth for that globally and, and in South Africa. Uh, so the first call you've got to make, investing in banks now, think three years out. Is Tesla still going to be at the valuation it is? I don't think so. It's going to come down a lot. Uh, Microsoft's already down a lot. Does it keep going down? And does that money go into the financial or other? Finally, if you go into banks in South Africa, I mean, we've still got money that we need to invest in South Africa. Then, you know, you want to stick with, with, with the guys who've, who've got a good team, who've got a good track record. And, and by the way, uh, I mean, I love uh, Mike Brown, he's doing an excellent job, but it's tougher being small. First mm -hmm. ran other guys at the moment that attract the best staff, that attract you know, also the best tech guys. So they are, I think, the best positioned. And despite their higher price to NOV, if Alan is right, and they're going to get back mm -hmm. to a 20% ROE on a three-year basis, it's very cheap. Okay, well there we go. There we've got are. our we've got our uh, our tip from Corky, if you like, <laughs> David. Would you go along with it? I'm going to put the first round share price on, Corky. Uh, just just before we we, uh, we we let David have the last word, at this level, the decline as we're seeing again that graph that you can't see, but uh, from from 60 rand pre-COVID to 40 I've rand. I've got it in my mind. Yeah, you, uh, that's a it's a big <laughs> four. I see it. I see it. So if it if it could just go back halfway, that would be a twenty percent yeah. improvement. Yeah, I mean, Alan referred to that in a different way, compounding. So if the return on capital just goes back to let's say fifteen percent, you've got in a low in inflation environment a fifteen percent compounding of shareholder value, and in two years' time we're going to start paying dividends again, or next year even. Although you heard what Alan said, if there's growth, they will keep. You know, more in reserve to fund the growth, but a 15% fairly high degree of certainty of compounding of shareholder value, uh, I think is worth more than a price to book of 1.45 at the moment. David, last word. Yeah, well, uh, when I started working 50 years ago, 
at Schwartz Fine. They opened an account for me at Standard Bank Cray Street, <laughs> and I still got it. <laughs> but when it comes to buying shares, we've always bought first brand, and I still hold it in portfolios, Alec. And uh, I thought today was wonderful, and uh, really thanks to Alan because uh taught us so much about banking and taught us so much about uh, what's happening behind the scenes, not the pure figures. And, uh, you know, for that, I'm very, very appreciative. And uh, answered questions very, as Corky said, very openly. So, yeah, it's a good business. It's still a biz- good business. And that's why I asked the question. You know, there's so many uh, wannabes and there's so many other businesses coming along. Just stick with the incumbents. Mm-hmm. And the real leverage here mm-hmm. is the country. Mm. If South Africa comes right, first rand will come right and then some. But at the moment, it's almost like the the whole perception is South Africa isn't going to come right because at the current share price of first rand being the most valuable bank on the JSE, it's telling us that uh, it's worth significantly less than it was pre-COVID, almost, almost down by 50%. Mm. Well, it's a two to three year call. And that's Alan said, you know, that's, that's where your focus has got to be. So you've got to have the patience to to sit through this if you believe it. You know, that's no one can tell you whether you believe it. That's what confidence is all about. But I think that if you look at that chart, the bottom is being formed. And that we might stay at these levels, but I think what's clear is that I think we've seen the, the bottom of prices. You know, you see that that sideways drip there. It's going to do this and it can do it for some time. So that's your protection. It looks like your downside is protection. Your upside is unlimited. David Shapiro, Koki Koeman, thanks uh, for your insights today. That has been a, another fascinating uh, program. I think after last one, uh, the last week, we wanted to jump out and buy <laughs> Aspen. Have you bought any yet, David? I'm really looking at it there as a, as a, as a great opportunity. And I guess this one as well. There was a question from Alan Chardelow who, who said, have you got any initial thoughts on the FinCEN files that were leaked yesterday? Do you know anything about that, David? Yeah, this is uh, money laundering by some big banks like HSBC and Standard Charter. And journalists got hold of files and that Standard Charter's, sorry, HSBC's price is halved. I think, and is now standing at, a, at the lowest level in 25 years. This is HSBC. So it's a, it's a massive scandal which is going to unfold. And I think this was money laundering, if I'm not mistaken, for countries like North Korea and so on. So I don't know, we're going to hear a lot about it in the next few days. It's quite interesting that all of the work that we've been doing here in this country, mm-hmm. exposing the money laundering of the Guptas, mm-hmm. Uh, I remember Peter mm. Hain uh, did, did, did the House of Lords. I was there one day when he was uh, unpacking it all, I guess, with parliamentary privilege. But it's now coming into the open. And HSBC was the central character in the Gupta mm. money laundering, if you recall. Mm. Mm. So here they are again. And I think the market is absolutely punishing. Them. But it's just been leaked. So I think uh, I have, I, you know, I'm just, I'm quoting uh, headlines. Still got to get to the bottom of it and read the articles. Well, the articles are on uh, Wall Street Journal already. So uh, our partners on the Wall Street Journal, of course, everybody on this uh, webinar is a Wall Street Journal subscriber because of the business premium um, relationship that we have with them. So go along there and, and have a look. But as David says, a 25-year low 
for HSBC. It's been our privilege to be with you again for Rational Radio, the webinar on a Monday. Until next time, cheerio. Thank <laughs> you.